Good morning. Let's turn in the Word of God to the book of Numbers once again. Numbers chapter 14. Numbers chapter 14. Numbers 14, and we're going to begin our reading at the 11th verse. Numbers 14 and verse 11. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people reject me? And how long will they not believe me with all the signs which I have performed among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. And Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear it. For by your might you brought these people up from among them. And they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, Lord, are among these people. That you, Lord, are seen face to face. And your cloud stands above them. And you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now if you kill these people as one man, then the nations which have heard of your fame will speak, saying, Because the Lord was not able to bring his people to the land which he swore to them, therefore he killed them in the wilderness. And now I pray, let the power of my Lord be great, just as you have spoken, saying, The Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he by no means clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Pardon the iniquity of this people, I pray, according to the greatness of your mercy, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. And the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. But truly, as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Because all these men who have seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have put me to the test now these ten times and have not heeded my voice, they certainly shall not see the land of which I swore to their fathers. Nor shall any of those who rejected me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit in him and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land where he went, and his descendants shall inherit it. Now the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valley. Tomorrow turn and move out into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. We saw yesterday that this was a watershed moment in the history of Israel. This was a time when things were clarified as to who stood where. Kind of the proverbial line in the sand. You remember the great story of the Alamo? Anybody here from Texas? Oh, well, wait a minute. You, you can't really be from Texas, bro? Because, you know, I would have heard a hoo-ha or a, the stars at night are big and bright. Deep in the heart of Texas, you know, Texans are very proud people, and justly so, of their state. Uh, but, you know, Ricky gave me the tepid 
halfway. So I guess he's embraced the bear republic here. So that's good. That's good. It's good to love where you live now. But you remember the Alamo when uh, Texas was just a territory, but they were fighting to break away from Mexico and that there were those folks down there. What is it around San Antonio, I believe, where the Alamo is? I've never been there, so I go on those who have. And they had that fortress there commanded by Travis. And I know even Johnny Cash wrote a song about this. He said, uh, I think it was 180 were challenged by Travis to die. And he drew this line in the sand. And over the line, says the song, went 179. Now, can you imagine that? Here's the commander-in-chief. And he says, now, men, we're not going to come out of this fight. But the right thing to do, the thing for our people's independence, even if we must die for it, is to stay here and defend. And Jim Bowie and all those other great heroes went over the line. I don't know about that other guy, what happened with him. I'm not sure. But there was a great display of bravery. So when we talk about a line in the sand, there's a decision being made. Or for the classicists among you, this was crossing the Rubicon. You know, that great moment when Julius Caesar said, I don't care, even though I crossed this boundary that's going to lead to civil war, I've made my decision, I'm going to do it. Well, here comes the deciding moment for the people of God. Because the thing about God is, he's not interested in hypothetical believers. You know, Monday morning quarterback is a fantastic thing. I say, I'm a long-suffering Washington Redskins fan, and have been all my life, even though I live in the heart of Eagles territory. So I'm accustomed to persecution, you understand. And often I say, well, if I were the coach, I would have done this or that. Or if I were the general manager, I would have drafted him and not him. Or I would have done this or that. Or if I was playing, I would have done that. (laughs) Can you imagine me suiting up and going out on the field? (laughs) I wouldn't even make one play. And yet in the comforts of my home, with no gigantic men breathing down upon me, I can coolly make decisions that I am sure will lead to the team being victorious. Well, that's not how the Christian faith is, folks. God's not interested in you saying, you know, intellectually, the idea of escaping hell appeals to me. I mean, given the alternative, I'd rather go to heaven, right? I mean, who doesn't want to go to a place where there's no death or no crying or no tears or no disease or no taxes for that matter? Who doesn't want to go to a place like that? Sure, I'd love to go to heaven. Or as the Israelites thought, if the alternative is bondage in Egypt, if I'm going to be here in chains or out free in some other land that God gives me where I can have my business and it can thrive and everything can go well and all my children will be good looking and above average, that's what I want. I'll take that. But serving the Lord... Loving the Lord God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, being about the Lord's business, I don't have time for that. I've got to get on with my life. I've got to get on with my security. And sure, the Lord is fine. I'm happy enough to go to the temple now and again, or happy enough to go to church, we'd say, in our age now and again. Give him an hour a week or a couple hours a week, maybe. But the rest of my life, hands off. No low tokes, right? Don't touch it. It's mine. I'll live my life the way I want. 
And maybe in case of emergency, break glass. I'll keep God there in the emergency box that if I'm on a plane, as I once was, and they said, we'd like you to assume the emergency crash position, then suddenly I'll become devout. I'll break God out and say, no, God, bail me out of this. As I heard many people praying on that plane, God, please bail me out of this and I'll serve you or I'll do this or that. And when the plane landed, they were yelling, buy that pilot a miller, not giving any glory to God because we didn't crash and the danger passed and God was forgotten. Well, that's basically what happened with the Israelites at Kadesh Barnea, that they come up to the land and they say, now it's just as advertised. It's a, a good land, a fecund land. Look how fertile the crops are there. And this fruitfulness, we call it Eshkol, after this wonderful cluster of grapes. And yet there are these giants there. And if we go in there, not only are we going to be destroyed, but we have our children to think about. Well, listen. You can never do anything better for your children than lead them to the Lord. You can never do anything for your children that's better than follow the Lord yourself. Because the safest place to be is following the Lord. The best life to live, not only in this life, but in the age to come, is the one which pleases the Lord. So you put the Lord first, your children aren't going to suffer The Lord will enable you to love your children and sacrifice for your children and do things for your children that in your own strength and in your way and in your plan, you could never do. So trust God with your children. He can handle it. He's past master. He's been raising human beings for millennia now. He's quite good at it. And he has a plan that's far more wonderful than any ambition we can have, even for our own families. The tragedy, of course, is that through their unbelief, as Hebrews calls it, through their disobedience, which manifested that unbelief, through the fact that they never had a real faith and trust in God. It was just a nominal faith, an empty profession, a hypothetical faith where they said, sure, it would be nice to go into the land that God gives. But when it came time to give anything up or it came time to suffer anything, they said, it's too hard. We'll go back. Let's make a captain and go back to Egypt. And it revealed what they were. And the only two that went over the line, so to speak, were Caleb and Joshua. They said, come, we can get it. Why? Because it's not about us. It's not about how tall the other team is. It's about God. If God's pleased to give it to us, he'll give it to us. And God has promised to give it to us. Let's believe God. Let's trust his word. Now, they weren't listened to. In fact, the nation was about ready to stone them. So God in this passage, as we're going to see, says to them, this generation that doesn't believe isn't going to get into the land. They're not going to get the inheritance that the Lord has for them because they're not believers. And the children that they have, guess what? Their children that they were so worried about, they're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And then I'll bring the children in. So you were worried about your children? Don't worry about it. I'll bring your children in, but you won't get in. That's solemn, isn't it? And it's, in a way, a tragedy that parents can sin and their children have to live with the consequences. Sometimes far-reaching consequences that follow them for decades. But I'll give you something encouraging. The flip side is, the Lord says to the children, I'll be with you in the wilderness. 
And even through your parents' failure, it wasn't your failure, it wasn't your sin, and you're having to deal with the consequences, but I'm going to use those same consequences in your life to form in you character and to build you up and to prepare you to inherit the land so when we come back here four decades from now and we're ready to go into the land, you don't balk, you don't pull back. You go forward trusting the Lord. I love those California Jays. They're beautiful. Praise the Lord for his creation. You go forward under Joshua, the one that the Lord has appointed. Isn't God good in overcoming human failure? So many people want to wallow in the mistakes of their family. They want to say, well, it's easy for you, Keith. You had loving parents. You had parents that believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. You had parents that taught you the word of God from since you can remember. And believe me, I don't take that for granted. I remember visiting an aged brother now with the Lord, Brother Arthur Garns from Maryland. Some of you might have known him. He was previously from New York. At one time, he was president of CMML. He was a renowned African-American surgeon. I mention his race because he overcame a great deal of racism and a great deal of prejudice to become the first reconstructive surgery of the hand who was African-American in the United States. And the marvelous thing about Brother Garns was, in spite of all of the, uh, all the things that were done against him through the years, he wasn't bitter because he committed himself to the Lord. I remember visiting him. I said, Brother Garns, did your parents believe? Did you have Christian parents? He said, yes. And he was about 88 when he told me this. He said, yes, I did. That's a blessing, which I was thanking the Lord for as recently as this morning. Well, I'm only 42, but I try to thank God on a daily basis for that blessing. I don't take it for granted. But some of you say, well, that wasn't my lot. I grew up in a single parent home or I grew up in a home where my parents weren't believers or I grew up in a home where my father was alcoholic or where my parents were addicts. You know, you don't have to go down the same road. You don't have to follow in their footsteps. You don't have to listen to society that tells you, well, now you're pretty much doomed. You're doomed by your genetics. You're doomed by your nurture. You're doomed by your environment because there's something more powerful than science. It's the God who makes the things that science discovers, true science. And God can change circumstances. That's why he speaks about people being born again. It's a brand new start. It's a brand new life source. It's being made a new creature in Christ Jesus, as 2 Corinthians 5.17 says. So I have friends that the Lord saved them out of the worst possible family backgrounds imaginable. Some of them stood up with me in my wedding. And it's amazing to me when I think back of the the men in my wedding party, how different each of us was. And yet we had all this in common, our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We had come out of all sorts of backgrounds. Some had overcome tremendous things, many consequences of the families they grew up in. But the common denominator was the power and the grace of God working in their lives. So whatever you've had to face, Put yourself in the hands of God. Go to the Lord and say, Lord, you can help me to overcome. The very nature of faith in Christ is overcoming. That's what 1 John chapter 5 tells us and what Revelation 2 and 3 reiterates over and over to the seven churches. 
Now, I think in this scene of failure, which could be quite depressing if we just focus solely on their errors, there's a few beautiful things we see about the grace of God and something beautiful about Moses that we can emulate. Number one, we see the long-suffering of God. Now, we have to remember when we're reading the Scriptures, very often we're reading a digest of events. In other words, God isn't giving it to us in a strictly linear timeline where we're given every detail. This is a summary of events. And even as God speaks here and speaks about Israel testing Him ten times, it's showing us the long-suffering of God. That God didn't wait for Israel to fail once and say, all right, you can't have the inheritance. God bore with this people over and over and over again. And the phrase 10 times may be a Semitic way of sort of emphasizing something because I recognize that in other phrases, for instance, in the case of Jacob, when he's pouring out his complaint to Laban, he says, you've changed my wages 10 times. I mean, you think your job's bad, you know? Talk about economic downturns. Jacob had to learn from the only shyster bigger than himself, you know? That was a hard school to learn in for 20 years. But there he was. He says, you've changed my wages 10 times. In other words, you've been all over the board with me, Laban, in messing around with my wages. And God could say the same thing about Israel and how they had treated him. Now, my brother Randy Amos actually will take you through the scriptures and show you 10 different instances where they challenged the Lord and tested the Lord on a national basis. So it quite possibly could be literal as well. But the bottom line is, by this time, at this moment, it's not like they're right out of Egypt and this is their first mistake. God is born with them and born with them and born with them and born with them and put up with them and forborn their mistakes and their errors. And now they get to the edge of the land and they say, you know what, God, on second thought, we don't want you. We'll make our own leader and go back to Egypt. Let's hit the reset button. Let's reboot. This is a do-over. In golf terms, we'll call it a mulligan. You know, we'll pretend this Exodus thing never happened and we'll just go back to our lives in Egypt. And that's what they said to God. See, Isaiah calls God's judgment his strange work. In other words, not something that God's up there in heaven with the baseball bat saying, I just can't wait till they step over the line. I'm going to whack them. That's not God. Some of you looked a little drowsy. Sorry about the volume. (laughs) God says, turn from your sin, turn from your sin, turn from your sin. Don't do that. There's bad consequences. Turn from your sin, turn from your sin. And when they finally cross that line where they say, no, God, no, God, no, God, we don't want you, God. God says, duly noted. In game show terms, I'll take that as your final answer. And now there's judgment. And see, people have to realize that the long-suffering of God is not indolence, that God is not slack concerning His promise as men count slackness, that the only reason planet Earth still exists today in July of 2015 is that God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. And like He said to Israel, all day long I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and gainsaying people. He's stretching His hands out to you perhaps today. He's stretching his hands out to this whole world. 
and saying to everyone, be saved, come to the Lord Jesus and come under the good of the payment he's made for your sins. He died on the cross and took your wrath, your judgment, what you deserved. He took the hit so that you wouldn't have to take it. And in place of your sin and your guilt and the penalty you deserve, what the Lord Jesus will give you is his peace and his joy and a righteous standing before God. So good that God says of it, you're accepted in the beloved. From henceforth, I'm going to look at you in Christ. That was beautiful last night when Brother Steve was reminding us of how the Lord stands between God's justice and our sin and shows those wounds. (laughs) Well, it's not just at the great white throne of judgment God does that. Every moment of every day, God's not looking at me as Keith Kaiser, the work in progress who fails every day, who keeps having to learn the same lessons, who says things he shouldn't say, who thinks things he shouldn't think, who lusts after things of this world, who fails time and time again and has to come and say, Father, forgive me. He doesn't look at me and say, oh, Keith, you're such a project. He looks at me as I am positionally, as I will be by his working one day in Christ sees me without spot or blemish or any such thing. He's the only person who could look at me that way. And it's real, it's truthful, not because of who I am or what I've done, but because of who the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God is and what he's done. So if you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ today, no matter how down on yourself, no matter how badly you may feel, no matter how much you may fail, go back to the Lord. Go back to your high priest whoever lives to make intercession for you. Go back to the one who specializes in washing feet, in cleansing away the practical defilement we incur in this world because he's got his eye on the big picture and he's always seeing you in Christ, accepted in the beloved. Conversely, if you don't have the Lord, all he can see you as is condemned, under judgment. You don't have to wait to the so-called pearly gates to see what the verdict is. The verdict's in. If you don't have the Lord Jesus Christ, you're condemned already, the Bible says. The only way to get out from that sentence is to receive a full pardon. We heard about it last night, forgiveness through the blood of the Lord Jesus, through the redemption payment he made at the cross, and through the proof of the acceptance of that payment, his resurrection, the eternal life that he gives to those who receive him. May you do it if you've never done so. God is long-suffering. And that leads to Moses to do one of his favorite jobs. I love Moses. Moses was an intercessor. In other words, he knew what it was to pray for people. It's amazing how parallel this passage is to back in Exodus chapter 32, when the children of Israel, before the ink is dry, so to speak, on the Ten Commandments, on those stone tablets, as Moses is up there coming down with the law of God, the people have already broken it. They're already worshiping the golden calf. And judgment's about to break out on the people. And God says, you know, Moses, I'm just going to wipe out this people and I'll start over with you. And Moses begins to pray for the people and intercede for them. He does the same thing here. At the worst moments in the nation, that's when Moses gets on his knees and prays for the people. I had to say that speaks to me. Because more often than not, I'm inclined to be annoyed with other people. 
especially on the roads. I'm inclined to be a bit put out with them. I'm inclined to see the way some people behave in this world and say that's such an odious way of behaving. That's such an ugly way of being. Why doesn't God just judge this people? Why can't they get their act together? Why can't they change? And if I feel that way toward unbelievers, you should see what I think about believers sometimes. I'd like to go in and go mow Larry Curly on them, you know, doink and bunk their heads together and say, get it together, people. (laughs) That's very short-sighted, isn't it? Because number one, I'm forgetting that I'm just as bad, that I'm as much in need of the grace of God as anybody else is. That any good in me isn't a natural product of who I am or my good breeding. Pennsylvania, German, and Scottish, hard to beat. But it's not anything natural from me. Any good in me is the Lord. Is the Lord working? It is God who works in you to will and to do of His good pleasure, Philippians 2 tells us. And when I look at these other people, it's so easy to forget what I used to be like. Now, what was I like? Well, I was saved when I was seven. I have a very similar testimony to Brother Steve in this sense, that I hadn't had a chance to show all the evil that was in my heart yet. It wasn't immediately discernible by my fellow human beings what a sinful wretch I was. But believe me, it was there in incipient form. It was there within me. All of the thoughts and intentions and wickedness. And even now I know I can say, as Paul said, in my flesh dwells no good thing. If you looked at what I am naturally apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, I am the chief of sinners. I am as much deserving of sin as anybody else. But you say, yes, but you never went out on a bender. You never got addicted to drugs. You never went into tremendous immorality. You never killed anybody. You were never a violent person. God saved you before you could be any of those things. Well, what about Moses? You read about Moses' life. For 40 years, he's in the palace. And we're not told of any faults, really, about him. Everything we're told about him there was good. He was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. So he went to school, and he worked very hard at his marks. Listen to this, children. And he worked very hard, and he did his homework, and he graduated summa cum laude, you know, highest honors. And he was there, a rising star in Egypt, so to speak. And we don't read about anything wrong with him. In fact, Hebrews 11 says, that when he became a mature man, he made a decision. He wasn't going to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, the passing pleasures of sin, as some translate it. He was going to choose to suffer reproach with the people of God. And as he went out and tried to be a deliverer, he tried to do it in his own strength, and God let him fall flat on his face. And because he got involved in a murder, being a vigilante, Then he had to go out and be exiled. And for 40 years in the desert of Midian, Moses unlearned confidence in self. And he learned confidence in God. And I'll tell you what that does for a person. When a human being begins to seek the Lord and say, not I, but Christ, not I, but what the Lord does in me, the Lord begins to show you things about your own heart. And suddenly you realize 
I'm as bad as Pharaoh. I'm as bad as the rest of the court. I'm as bad as the rest of the nation of Egypt. I'm as bad as the other Israelites. Okay, I haven't sinned in the same way the Israelites have sinned, but I'm as deserving as the judgment of God. The other thing he learned is, the number one overarching goal in life is that God may be glorified. And you see this here in his prayers. Now, he goes through, and it's rather lovely, isn't it, in chapter 14, how Moses prays. We see it there when the Lord threatens to destroy them. First of all, in verse 13, this is Numbers 14, 13, Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear it. For by your might, you brought this people up from among them, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, notice this pronoun, that you, Lord, are among these people, that you, Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands above them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill these people as one man, then the nations which have heard of your fame will speak, saying, because the Lord was not able to bring this people to the land. What's Moses praying about? Is he saying, Lord, you know, this is really bad for my career to just wipe out the whole nation like that. I mean, it's going to take a while to make a new nation out of my descendants, and I'd just rather get on with it, you know? No. He's saying, Lord, think about your glory. Think about the implications here, that if you wipe out this nation, the other nations are going to look at it and say, well, after all, it's because God knew he couldn't do it, so he just wiped them out before that became manifest to the whole world. And it's your glory, Lord. I want them to see what you're like. That's what I care about. That's what I'm praying about first and foremost. I want your fame, as he says in verse 15. Now he says, verse 17, let the power of my Lord be great, just as you've spoken. You're the master. He uses the word Adonai there. You're the master. You're the sovereign one. You've got great power. How are you going to manifest your power, Lord? By wiping them all out? No. Manifest your power in another way. Because it certainly is a powerful thing if you can turn green and go all incredible hawk, isn't it? I mean, you could rip a car in half. That would be a great display of power. But what is a greater display of power? If you can have all of that power and control it and not exercise it. So that you say, Mr. McGee, don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. But you're keeping it together. You're not bursting forth. That's the idea of meekness, isn't it? Strength under control. And this is how Moses is praying. And then he quotes God's own words. Verse 18. Now, this is a quotation from Exodus 34. Moses used the same line of thinking before when he interceded for the people. He said, The Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he by no means clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. So it's not an issue here whether you hate sin, God. It's not an issue here whether you are a righteous being, but you're also a merciful and a long-suffering and a forgiving God. Isn't it lovely to hear Moses pray that way? God, I know what you're like. You're long-suffering. You're merciful. And so, God, in keeping with, that, with those attributes, please, Pardon the sin of this people. They don't deserve it, but pardon it anyway. 
It's very interesting, a later prophet, the prophet Jonah, in Jonah chapter 4, when God spared the city of Nineveh in one of the greatest displays of grace in world history, Jonah said, now this is why I didn't want to come in the first place. It wasn't like so many children's books tried to tell us that Jonah was afraid. That wasn't it at all. It was something worse than that. He didn't want these mangy old Assyrians, these nasty, morally reprobate people to be spared. They're too bad to receive the grace of God. I don't want to see you save them. I want to see that nation go down. They deserve it. But I knew what you're like, God. He says in Jonah 4, you're a long-suffering God. You're a merciful God. And he quotes this verbatim. He too goes back to Exodus 34 and talks exactly about what the character of God is. And he says, that's why I didn't want to come, because I knew you'd forgive them. It's kind of funny, isn't it? I don't want to be too hard on Brother Jonah, because I think he learned the lesson. After all, we have the book, and it bears clear marks of being autobiographical. I think Jonah was telling tales on himself. He was being like Brother Steve has, very candid about his own mistakes to show the greatness of God. Well, here's Moses, and he's not complaining about these attributes of God. He's pleading consistent with them. See, this is the sign of a man whose heart is beating in tandem with God's heart, so to speak. He is loving what God loves and hating what God hates. He hates sin. He loves God's glory, but he knows God's glory and God's strength is going to be demonstrated in not wiping out the nation of Israel, but in fulfilling his word toward them and in the long run in being merciful. Now you say, yeah. But the Lord still wiped out this generation, didn't he? I mean, he kills the 10 unbelieving spies in this passage. And then begins that long series of funerals that Brother Price has referred to. You read Psalm 90, you get the gist of it. As Moses is out there wandering in the wilderness and he says, Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. We don't have a settled dwelling place here. We're just dwelling in the Lord. And he talks about how frail man is, how he only lives for 70 years. And, and if it's more than that, by strength, well, still, he ends up going to dust. Must have been very depressing going to all those funerals through those years and remembering what might have been. But here's the thing. As sad as it was that that generation of unbelievers received the just due of their decision, God said, I'm going to bring the children in. I'm not going to wipe out the whole nation. I'm not going to destroy Israel. I'm not going to rescind my promises. My promises are irrevocable. As Romans 10 describes this same truth, the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. Aren't you glad for that? That's the whole reason for Romans 9, 10, and 11. Why am I not a replacement theologian? Why do I believe there are separate destinies for the church and for Israel? Why do I believe that God's literally, physically going to fulfill the Abrahamic and Palestinian and Davidic covenants and the new covenant of Jeremiah in Israel? Because if he doesn't fulfill his promises to Israel, how could I know he'd fulfill his promises to me in this church age? But God makes promises and he is the ultimate celestial promise keeper. He doesn't back down on his word. As we'll find out in another message later in the book of Numbers, he's not a man that he should lie. 
or the Son of Man that he should repent. In other words, change his mind. He says, I've heard you. I've pardoned the nation. I'm going to continue to work with Israel. As far as the individual people, they're going to be judged. Because in every age, salvation is by faith in the provision that God makes to take away sin. And you don't get saved on automatic pilot. You don't get saved because of your family relationship. God has no grandchildren, as the saying goes. And that's what, Roman, or what John, rather, John chapter 1 tells us, isn't it? We're born not of the will of flesh, not of the will of man, not of blood, but according to the will of God. So every person individually has to make their decision, their choice to receive the grace of God given in Christ Jesus. Many of you have made that choice and you can rejoice today that you're not going to get to heaven and God say, well, I changed my mind. (laughs) No, you're going to get in and you're going to receive what the Lord's prepared for you before the foundation of the world. But if you disbelieve the gospel, there's still time. There's still a chance to come and say, God, you're long-suffering, you're merciful, you're gracious, you're good, you're loving. You've shown that in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the Lord Jesus, I'm trusting to save me. Save me, Lord, a sinner. And the Lord will save you today. I really wanted to get into the sun, into uh, Korah, rather, in this message. That didn't happen. So we're going to talk about Korah, and we're going to see the flip side of priesthood and intercession in my next message, Lord willing. But may God bless these words to our hearts. Father, we're thankful for thy mercy and grace. We're thankful to pray for people to be saved and to know we're praying for what is already thy desire and thy will. And we're thankful that thou art a God who's working to convict people of sin and righteousness and judgment to come and to flee from that wrath and be saved. We're thankful that the battle is the Lord's and we don't have to do it all. We just have to be available for thy use. We just pray that we would be these earthen vessels that have this treasure within, that we would let thee fill us and use us for thy glory. We pray it in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen.